in a series on, as we're walking through the book of James and we're talking about genuine faith. And, and the book of James is challenging. That's what we've learned the first two weeks of this is that it's really, really convicting. And the deeper that we get into it, the more convicting I find it because the book of James is zeroing in not just on our actions and on our externals, it's zeroing in on our motives. And that's where it gets hard. Because sometimes I do the right thing and it looks good for everybody else, but in my heart, I don't want to do the right thing. And I'm not doing it out of a good place. I'm doing it out of obligation and my motives aren't right, but it's still there. Uh, Rick Copeland reminded me this morning, there was a viral video that came out, I don't know, whenever videos come out, a few months ago. And it was a pastor at a large church who dressed up on a Sunday morning as a homeless man and sat on the front porch. It was like an undercover boss thing. Uh, he had like somebody do the makeup and the whole deal. Uh, anybody, anybody a fan of Arrested Development, the TV show? Uh, every time I see these things, I think of Gene Parmesan, right? He's the like master of disguise on Arrested Development. And every time he shows up, he takes off the mask and the mom screams and everybody acts surprised. It was super hokey and cheesy. We just, just, Bear with me, the church is super hokey and cheesy a lot of times. But the guy dressed up like a homeless man, sat on the front porch, and, and I, I turned it on, and Rick said the same thing when we were talking about this morning. I thought it was going to be one of those, like, gotcha things. Like, ah, oh, you guys stink. You guys didn't treat that guy nice, and that was me all along, and, and shame on all of you, and tithe more this week. I, I, I thought it was going to turn into, like, one of those things. Uh, and the church was just so beautifully loving to the, to the pastor in disguise. Um, now, some of them probably figured it out, that it was Jean Parmesan. Like, they knew all along that he was disguised. But I think there was a genuine, just people were walking by saying, hey, can I get you some coffee? Hey, can I get you a blanket? Are you cold? Do you want to come inside? Why don't you hang out with us? What do you need? Like, let me go into the kitchen and fix something up for you. And there was just person after person stopping by and doing those kinds of things. And if I were a master of disguise, and I sat out front in the rain today, my guess is you would all treat me exactly the same. I would be met with kindness and love and dignity and respect and honor and care and all of those things that we're supposed to do. But I think this passage goes deeper than that. And I think it's bigger than just these little tiny things. This passage talks about impartiality and it talks about favoritism and it talks about treating everybody equally. And as I read it this week, I was super see a scenario that a scenario that every single one of us face every single week. You've got two people that want to meet with you. Uh, one of those people is super educated. They're going to offer you some wisdom as you meet with them. One of those people has some money and some wealth and they're going to give you some job advice or they're going to help you with something along the way. They're going to give you something, right? And, and, uh, and one of these people you enjoy meeting with, like they're fun to meet with, you laugh with them, you have a good time with them, you feel like you're like them, you like the same sports teams or you have the same conversations or you eat the same food or like the same movies. There's some common ground there where you're like, oh, that meeting will be fun. That's good. And you're excited about that meeting, right? You're excited, like I'm gonna get something out of this meeting. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna... Get some wisdom from this person. I'm going to get some laughs in. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to, something selfishly, right? There's some kind of motive in there that I'm going to receive something here. And then there's another person who like, they call you and you're like, ah, 
do I really pick this up? You, know, you guys, you all have them, right? Some of you, they're family members, right? It's like, I don't know if I want to answer this. I know that they're going to want my time, and I know that I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to meet with them. And it doesn't feel like they give something to you. It's like they drain the life out of you. You guys know those people, right? They just suck the life out of you. And it's not like they give you wisdom. It's like you're always giving to them. You're always supporting them, and you're always sacrificing for them. And so when we have these moments and we look at these two people side by side and we're like, I want to meet with this person and I don't want to meet with this person, is that wrong? Is there something in us that's like, ah, I don't know, is that human nature? Is that just the normal way that humans act? Is it okay? Or is there something deeper here that we need to examine and that we need to look at? and that we need to pay attention to. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, start out by talking about the rich and the poor. And remember, we've just talked about having trials, right? We're going to have trials. No matter who you are, you're going to face trials. God is going to give you those trials, but when those trials come, they develop perseverance. They actually create a good thing in us, and God is working in the midst of our trials, and he's developing us, and he's testing us, and he's training us, and he's teaching us. And then when we ask for wisdom in the middle of those trials, he's generous, and he gives us that wisdom, and so we can turn to him in the middle of those spaces. And then James takes a little bit of a turn, and he says, let the lowly brother boast in exaltation and the rich in humiliation. He starts off with just two paradoxes, which scripture is great with paradoxes. All throughout the New Testament, there's all of these paradoxes. The rich will be poor, the last will be first. All of these kinds of pieces where Jesus and, 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 and Paul and the writers of the New Testament are, are laying out these ideas about these paradoxes. And it starts off with this paradox of the lowly brother is gonna boast and the rich is gonna be humbled because like a flower in the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall, the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade into the midst of his pursuits. James says, eventually the rich or poor, you're all going to face trials. Rich or poor, you're all going to be humbled at some point. So if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Everybody's going to experience these things. Everybody is going to be tested. Now, I, I want to bounce around a little bit today. And, and I know this is unorthodox, so bear with me. I know this is going to drive some of you crazy. Some of you are like, we have to do it by the book. How many of you are like, if, here, there's a reason why I don't do fill in the blanks. Um, you know how some pastors will do like the fill in the blank things? You know why I don't do the fill in the blanks? Because I always miss one and then somebody gets mad at me. How many of you are them get mad at you because there was one blank or maybe not mad? Let's just say this. How many of you, it would bother you extensively if there was one blank? Still, Julie, Julie's admitting it. A couple others. All right, we got a few. My wife, uh, I actually agree with that. Um, there, we're going to bounce to chapter two here because this, these passages in nine and 11 line up really well with what's going on at the beginning of chapter two of James, and I wanna connect those two together. Now, don't worry for those of you who are stressed right now. We are going to circle back to verse 12 next week, all right? So I promise you, we're gonna fill in the blank. It's gonna be okay, Sarah, I love you. Uh, we're gonna get there, but we're gonna bounce to chapter two because I think chapter two kind of sums up some of this, and it starts off with this. It says, my brothers, show no partiality. 
as you hold the faith in, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of your glory. So when he says, my brothers, who is he talking to? Who, who is the book of James written to? Do we remember? Yeah, so if you, any, anytime you forget who wrote the book, go back to the beginning, right? Anytime you forget who it's written for, go back to the beginning. And so if you go back to the beginning of James, he gives his introduction, and in his introduction, he says, this is for the 12 churches. And so he's writing to these 12 churches. And so when he says, my brothers, he's not talking to people outside of the church. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to the Roman government. He's not talking to anybody other than the church, so it's like him starting the second chapter by saying, church, show no partiality. Show no partiality. Partiality would be judging or showing favoritism based on external experiences and motivated by a hope of a personal gain. Listen, don't show partiality. Uh, I, I wish we lived in a world where there wasn't partiality. Don't you? Like, I wish that we lived in a world where we didn't judge each other in moments. Uh, as a speaker, I, I've, I've gone through a lot of training, and I've trained some other teachers in how to communicate and those kinds of things. And one of the things that people tell you is that when you're presenting in front of an audience, that within the first 30 seconds, this is how much time frame we have left. I, we've fallen in love with reels and fast and all those kinds of things. In the first 30 seconds, everybody in your audience decides whether they're going to listen to you or not. 30 seconds, can you give me at least a minute, right? Within the first 30 seconds, we make snap judgments of every person we meet. We make judgments about whether we want to spend time with them. We make judgments about whether they're worth our time. We make judgments around their educational background, their history, who they are, whether they have something to offer us, whether there's a connection, whether there's something real. We, I don't know what we do in those 30 seconds. Like, our, our brain is so amazing because it's working on a million different levels, right? Uh, how many of you are, like, you take everything at face value? Just when you see something, when you have a conversation, you're, you're just like, okay, that's what it was. Um, that's, I, I, that's how a lot of people operate. And then there's others that are seeing what's happening behind the thing. Like, you're, you're not actually listening to what's happening in the conversation here, but you're paying attention to what was happening behind the conversation. And you're like, I can't believe they said that. And somebody else is like, they said what? They didn't say anything. And you're like, no, they were saying lots of things. You know what I'm talking about? Our brain is always moving and perceiving and judging, and, and I wish we lived in a world where, where, where it didn't work that way. Like, I, 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 when we ask ourselves tough questions, it gets tougher and tougher. Like, do you love everybody equally? We'd love to say yes until we dug deeper. Do you care for people equally? We'd like to say yes, but do we value the poor as much as we value the rich? Do you accept the pretty person as much as you accept the ugly person? You listen to the person who voted differently than you as much as you listen to the person that voted the same as you. In reality, in our world, you're going to be faced with rich people and poor people, smart people and dumb people, godly people and ungodly people, good-looking people and ugly people, skinny people and fat people, white and black people, hairy and bald people, good-smelling and bad-smelling people. My question for us today is does our faith cause us to treat everyone equally? Or do we have measures of how we treat people? Do we have bars that may be completely unwritten even to us? 
Right? It may be not something that we even consciously do. It may be a subconscious thing. It may be something that's going on beneath the surface, and it may be something that we don't even want to name or acknowledge or pay attention to, but genuine faith causes us to love equally. We've talked about this whole passage, this whole book of James is about our motives and our motivations, and it's about teaching us how to have an authentic faith, a faith that is real and genuine, and it's the faith that we all long to for. We don't want a fake faith. We don't want a pretending faith. We want a faith that's genuine and heartfelt. Like, like Benton said, when we say only Jesus, we want it to mean only Jesus. But it's hard for us to get there. And this is a huge deal for the 12 churches at this time who have just realized that the gospel is for all people, Jews and Gentiles. And the early church was not just the East Cobb crowd, guys. The early church was people from all over the place. In fact, most of the early church was women and slaves. It was people that were from a poorer class who were coming and gathering together with rich people who had wealth and had positions. And all of a sudden, for the first time, there was this molding of people and everybody came together under the family of God, no matter your wealth, no matter your race, no matter your education, no matter your social status or your class, everybody fit together in one space. And this was incredibly important to the early church. It was, there, there was this intentionality about reaching beyond themselves, but not just towards people that are like them. And if we want to dig deeper to this, we got to ask the question, how can you claim to have a genuine faith in Jesus when you don't treat people equally? You want me to go real deep? How can you have a genuine faith when you're prejudiced? How can you have a genuine faith when you're racist? How can you have a genuine faith when you're a bigot? How can you have genuine faith when you're a chauvinist? How can you claim to be an ambassador of the Father who invites everyone into his family and calls all of us image bearers and sons and daughters of him and deny the son and daughtership of somebody else? How do we do it? How do we claim to be in him, yet make distinctions of who can be with us? It's really, really hard. So I want to walk through this, and I want to just kind of walk through this idea of partiality. I'm going to use the word favoritism instead of partiality. And I realize that both partiality and favoritism are not perfect words, right? Partiality is just confusing, I think. Uh, and favoritism, I always think of my kids. My kids are like, Dad, you favor this one over this one. Yeah, they, got a, they got $2 more on their birthday present than I did, or like those kinds of things. There's always this, they're getting older, they don't do that anymore, but they used to, right? Uh, there, there's always this kind of thing that happens in those spaces. Um, but, but here's what I want to say. Favoritism is to give preference to one person or group over others with equal claims. So it's to favor one group or one set of people over others that have equal claim. Verse 2, for if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and he comes into your assembly, right? Assembly is church, right? He comes into your church and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. You pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in the good place. And while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
There's a, a, a story that floats around the Grace family. The founding pastor of the Grace family is Buddy Hoffman. Buddy said there was a gathering and the church was just starting to grow and there was a bunch of people who had gathered and this guy came in off the street and the guy was kind of smelly and the guy was kind of loud and the guy was probably drunk. You could smell alcohol on his breath and, 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 and Buddy sat and talked to him for a few minutes and had a conversation with him and then after the service, somebody came up to him and said, Pastor, I'm really concerned. Did you see that person? Did you see, there, I think there was alcohol. I think there was, a, you know, all of these kinds of things. And, and Buddy said, I am concerned. I'm really concerned, but I'm not concerned about that person. I'm concerned about you. Buddy always said the things that I wish I could say. <laughs> I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about this partiality, this favoritism that you're showing to this person. This is what it's talking about. But then it goes deeper. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of who you are called? And in the New Testament, there are a lot of distinctions about rich and poor. There's a lot of ways in which God's people were taken advantage of. There were tax collectors that were unjust. There was a social class system that was working against it. There's a lot in the, Old, in the New Testament about Jews and Gentiles, which is about race. Right? This is about there are certain racial groups that are left out or that are shown favoritism. There are certain people or people groups that are left out. Um, there's a lot about identity. There's, there's a lot about politics. There are certain beliefs, and you're left out of the church because you believe certain things. And all of these things are, 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 have a part to play in the New Testament. So I want to define some terms really quickly because I think it's helpful. And then I want to talk to you about why we're talking about this because every single time we talk about things like this, I get an email. And every single time the email says the same thing. It says, Pastor, why are you being so woke? Listen, I don't even know what that means. Right? I don't know what that term means. I don't think it's the insult that you intend it to be. Uh, I, I, but it's, I, it's, it's not like, it, it always happens over and over again. And here's what I want you to understand. I am not trying to be woke here. I do not have a political agenda here. If you know me, and many of you do, you've been hung out with me for a long time. I hate both political parties equally. Like, I have an equal disdain for politics. I think politics is evil. I think it's divisive, and I think it's tearing a wall in the church, and I think it's causing God's people to not follow God's kingdom and listen to his word. I think it's, it's causing them to be triggered by words. And so when we talk about race, or when we talk about politics, or when we talk about any of those things, I know that this triggers some people because you're viewing it through a lens of your political party. And I want to ask you today, don't view it through the lens of your political party. View it through the lens of what we're talking about here in Scripture, which is saying God's people, don't show favoritism. Don't treat anybody different. Don't make snap judgments about the people that you're standing beside or talking to or having a conversation with. Love and honor each other equally. And so here's the hard part, because there's little things like, oh, I judge that person's clothes, 
And then there's deeper things that are deeper rooted that we actually have to root out of our life, like discrimination and racism and and things that we grew up in and things that are a part of our family history and the way that our parents talked about other people or other people groups that are big and significant things that we actually have to pay attention to. And the struggle with this sermon is this is a sermon that we love to listen to and say, I wish somebody else had heard this. I have people come up to me and say that to me. Oh, pastor, that was so good. I wish my mom had heard that. And every single time I want to do a buddy moment. Like I I want to say, I wish you had heard that. Right? I know you. I know how you talk about other people. I wish you had heard that. Right? I wish you had paid attention to. And so there's times when we're listening to a sermon and our temptation is like to nudge the person beside us or to think, oh, I wish my racist uncle had heard that. Instead of actually paying attention to what's going on here. Discrimination is the unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories or people or things, especially on the grounds of race, age, or sex. Prejudiced is the preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. It is dislike, hostility, or unjust behavior deriving from unfound opinions. Racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism by an individual community or an institution against a person or a people group on the basis of their membership in a particular race or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority group or marginalized group. Chauvinism is an excessive or prejudiced loyalty to support one's own gender. Bigotry is intolerance towards those who hold different opinions of ourself. All of these are ways that when we go deep, we start to experience ways in which we show favoritism, ways in which we make snap judgments, ways in which we perceive other people, ways in which we look at other people. And our temptation is to look at all of those terms that I just named and said there's some kind of woke agenda here. Or secondly, there is some kind of thing that is happening in other people but not in me. I am the pastor of this church, and there are times when I'm bigoted. There are times when I am a chauvinist. There are times when I'm a racist. There are times when I am prejudiced, and there are times when I discriminate. It's not violent. It's not terrible. It's not what we imagine when we think of those terms. But in my mind and in my heart and in my motives, all of those things exist in me because I am a sinner and because sin lives in me. And I'm not afraid to confess that and to name that because Jesus is working in me the same way that he's working in all of us. Paul said, I am the greatest of sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we're, if we're followers of Jesus, then we're the first to repent of these things. We're the first to say, I, I, I don't know, always know how I do this. I don't always know how this works. I don't always know how it functions, but I'm open to repentance. I'm open to rebuke. I'm open to learning. I'm open to growing. I'm open to understanding. I'm open to hearing where I still need to grow and where I still need to be changed because we gladly confess our sin. And when we get in a place where we get so triggered by even talking about these things, the irony is we're doing the exact same thing that the, the, the passage says not to do. And so you can write me an email at the end of this. I'd encourage you to read James chapter 2, though. You can go out and say Pastor Ben or Pastor Douglas or whoever and make up things about us and say things about who we are and what we do and what we believe. You can, uh, you can throw things on us that aren't true. You're doing exactly what James chapter 2 says not to do when you do those things. 
What James is saying is this. Be humble enough to look at your own heart. Be humble enough to say, I don't want any sin living in me. I want the rule and reign of Jesus in every area of my life. Every area of my life. And I want to follow him and I want to be obedient. So listen, don't hear what I'm not saying and don't misunderstand this. There are times when you need to treat people differently because of the position that they hold. There is no woman in this congregation that gets more attention from me than Sarah Hardman. One, because I like her more than I like all of you. And secondly, because she has a claim to my attention. She is my wife. There is no child in this congregation that gets more attention from me than Cole Hardman and Claire Hardman and Caden Hardman because they are my children and they have a claim to my time and they have a claim to my favoritism. They are my favorite children in all the world. They are my favorite, right, of anyone. Put anybody in front of me. They're my favorites, right? That's okay. There is, there is times when we show favoritism because it makes sense. And, it's, and, and it's, people don't, not everyone has an equal claim to your attention and your affection. But the sin of favoritism is based on three things. Here's the three things. The first thing is it's based on selfish motives. There's some selfish motive involved in it. The second is that it's based on unfounded opinions or beliefs. There is some rush to judgment. There is some sort of judgment that we are making over other people that's causing us to value this person over this person. And thirdly, it's contrary to God's word, and even bigger, it's contrary to God's nature. Favoritism is based in selfish motives. It's based in unfound opinions and beliefs, and it's contrary to God's word and God's nature. Not everyone has a claim to access to you whenever they want it. Not everyone has a claim to the same amount of affection from you as you give them, but everyone you come in contact with should be treated with dignity, respect, and honor regardless of who they are, what they earn, who they voted for, what the color of their skin is, and what they're wearing that day. Favoritism dishonors God's sons and daughters. One of the most powerful lessons that we could possibly learn as followers of Jesus is to see every person as an image bearer of Jesus. That the image of God is deeply rooted and placed in every single person that you come in contact with. Think of your favorites right now, all your favorite people. Think of all of them. Some of you are thinking about Taylor Swift. Think about your favorites, right? Image bearers. The image of God is in them. Think about the people that drive you the most crazy, that are the most annoying people in your life. The image of God is deeply rooted in them. He made them and he created them and he calls them sons and daughters and how dare we call them anything else. Romans 12.9 says, Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. What a beautiful passage for the church. What if a community of people really tried to live this out, like made this a high priority? Like, here's the priority. We're going to honor each other. What if in your marriage you tried to outdo one another with honor? Every single day you woke up and I'm like, you're like, I'm going to honor you more than you're going to honor me today. 
I'm going to win in the game of honor. Like, I got to make everything a competition, right? So, but you're outdoing, like, you're fighting for this. You're, you're, you're showing, like, every person I come in contact with, I want to honor them. Here, here's the second thing I want to say about favoritism. Favoritism is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Genuine faith causes us to value everyone. But if we're segregating people, if we're placing value on people based on what they look like and what they sound like or what they're wearing, then you are the one that has the maturity issue. Romans 2.11 says God does not show favoritism. Ephesians 6.9 says God has no favorites. And if God is inviting everybody into his family and saying all of you are invited, we cannot be the ones who are putting up walls and restrictions on others. The key question that James is asking is how can you, ha- how can you claim to have faith in Christ if you favor some people over others, if we're still treating people unfairly, if we're still judging people unfairly, if we're still showing favoritism, if we're refusing to forgive, if we're refusing to give attention to certain people, God wants to work in our hearts. And I don't know if this is convicting to any of you or if this is just for me this week, but I was deeply convicted in this this week of just how often I make snap judgments on people of how often I, I, I want to hang out with the people who give me something, right? That, that, that help move my selfish ambitions or motives forward. And I don't want to spend time with the people who just want me to serve them. Verses 8 through 12 goes deeper, and, and I'm running out of time, so I, I'm, I'm going to skip over this. You can go in and look at it, and it talks about how we have to follow the law, and all of us break the law in certain ways, and there's all these certain ways in which all of us fall short of the glory of God. So we cannot pretend that God has not forgiven us and not shown favoritism to us. None of us deserve to be in the family of God. We're all sinners. We've all made mistakes. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all done things that have dishonored him. We've all walked away from our faith. I would suggest that we do it every single day. There's a famous monastic writer who tried to go 24 hours without sinning. He wrote about it his whole life and could never make it 24 hours without sinning. Over and over again, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna do everything. Like He tried everything. He was like, I'm just gonna hide in a cave. Like, Sin can't find me here. There's no women for me to look at. There's no money for me to get involved in. I'm just going to hide in a cave. And sin found him there. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us have made mistakes. All of us have fallen short. But here's what favoritism is overcome by. Favoritism is overcome with mercy. Verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That's a tough, tough passage. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's, what, here's, here's how we win in this moment. And I might make a crazy suggestion to say this is how we win in every moment. We act like Jesus. We act like God. Who could keep a record of wrong against us. Who could keep us out of his family. Who could kick us out of the church who could do all kinds of different things to us, but says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are forgiven, come here. Mercy is compassion lived out. John Stott said this, he says, mercy is compassion. Mercy reaches out to help those who have a need. 
Mercy is what causes you to love your enemy. Mercy is what motivates you to help a stranger. Mercy is kind when others are unkind. Mercy is loving when others are unloving. Mercy treats everyone equally when you are not treated equally. Any selfish person can show favoritism, but it takes a transformed heart to demonstrate real mercy. Mercy is always your weapon against favoritism. And I can do great with this as long as people are treating me great. Are you with me? The mercy needs to come when I'm treated unfairly. The mercy needs to come when something's said that's not fair about me. The mercy needs to come when I really do have a reason to keep a record of wrong against this person. They do deserve judgment. They have wronged me. And James says, that's the time when mercy wins. This is how we overcome this. We forgive. We show mercy. We show kindness. We show favoritism. We, we, we step in in a different way. God is saying, be like me. And the next time you're tempted to keep a record of wrong or to judge someone or to show favoritism or to do any of these things, just remember how God has treated you. Remember how he's invited you in. Remember how he's called you his own. Remember how he's forgiven you and offered you the ring and the robe and everything he has is ours. And ask the question, if I'm going to be his ambassador, if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, if I'm going to be his son and daughter, then I have to act like dad. And so we put on mercy. It becomes a part of what we walk in and walk through every day. And this is really hard for me this week. As I went through this, I was just thinking, oh my goodness, I got a bunch of people in my life that I need to be more merciful towards. I got a bunch of people in my life that when they call, I'm like, "Mm." I got a bunch of people in my life that don't call me that I need to show mercy towards. And so I think we could read this passage today and I think we could say, Let's be nice to the homeless guy that shows up on the front porch. You guys would do that. I'd like for us to go deeper. And I'd like for us to say, Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, who is the person in my life that you're asking me to show mercy towards? Where in my life is there any hint of partiality or of favoritism? Where in my life am I treating anybody differently than others or making snap judgments about people? Pay attention when you meet people this week for the very first time. Pay attention to your snap judgments. Pay attention to your 30-second assessment of people and say to Jesus, nope, help me see deeper. Help me see the image of God in this person. Help me know that they were created by you and for you, that they are a living embodiment of your creation and that I am called to love all of your creation. Now listen, some of you have been wronged in really terrible ways. And for some of you, it is unsafe for you to put yourself in position with the person who has hurt you. I am not suggesting to anybody that you put yourself in an unsafe position. There is a difference between showing mercy and putting yourself in the mercy of somebody else, right? 
And so I believe that you can show mercy to some people. There are, there, I, I, could, I could name, we could put them on the screen. It probably wouldn't be very holy for me to do that. I could put names of people on the screen who I will never go into business with. I will never have a relationship like that again with specific people. I would never work for them. I would never partner with them in work. I don't know that I even want to go to dinner at their house, but I can show mercy to them. And part of my mercy is I don't have to tell my story over and over and over again. I don't have to be the one that is right. I don't have to speak negatively about that person every time their name comes up. I don't have to keep a record of wrong anymore, and I don't have to watch them and wait for them to be judged and celebrate when it happens. I don't have to pay attention to their failures and feel great about them. And I don't have to pay attention to their wins and feel bad about them. I can simply say, God, you are the one who judges. I'm going to show mercy and I'm going to trust that you are good and that you're going to offer this person the same grace and kindness that you've offered me. So we're going to move into a time of communion. We've got communion stations set up all over the room. And and as we take communion every single week, we remember Jesus who went to great lengths to show us that we belonged in his family, who shed his blood and and had his body broken so that we, who didn't deserve it, could be his sons and daughters. And so today, as you take communion or as we take this moment of reflection, I, I just want you to say, Holy Spirit, what are you inviting me to do with this message? How are you challenging me? What are you inviting me to do? What's my next step? What does obedience look like for me in this? And then we're going to kind of close in worship together and we'll move in through our week and hopefully we'll show mercy and we'll not show favoritism and we'll be the type of people whose faith is genuine and real because we love Jesus and we want to be like him. And so Heavenly Father, I know that I imperfectly described all of what's happening in this passage, but I also trust that your Holy Spirit can do it perfectly. So I ask your Holy Spirit to move and work around this room right now. I ask that you would convict us and that you would challenge us to be more like you. I ask that you would allow us to be humble enough in our own postures that we look at our own heart. We look at the areas of our life where we show favoritism, where we show partiality. And you would help us to understand that we want a genuine faith. I pray that your kindness and your love and your mercy would grow so strongly within each of us that we would be so willing to offer it to others. And so Holy Spirit, just move and work in this place right now. Speak to these people, speak to our hearts, remind us of who you are, remind us what you're inviting us to. Bring names to our mind of people that we're supposed to offer mercy towards. Help us to be a community that doesn't just love East Cobb and the East Cobb elites, but loves the broken places of this community. Not just when they show up here, but help us to love them enough that we go there and that we plant ourselves in places where our convictions and our hearts and our assumptions and maybe some of the beliefs that we grew up with or inherited from our families where they're tested and challenged because we're in real relationship with real people who are image bearers of you. So we ask your spirit to move and work and to have your way. Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name.